Uh, my name's uh, Simon. I'm going to be speaking this morning. Let's, uh, let's pray, shall we, as we begin uh, this new series. Father, we just thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for the fact that you've saved us, that you've called us home, that you've called us into your family, that you've redeemed us and, and bought us with a great price. And we just thank you for this privilege of standing together in your presence, for the privilege of being adopted into your family, that you've taken us from every background, every race, every nationality, every uh, 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 background in our lives, God. You've called us and rescued us, and we thank you, Jesus, that you've called us together today. And we just pray, speak to us through your word. We, we pray the prayer that John Wimber prayed, make us like a coin in your pocket to spend as you will. We humbly submit ourselves to you this morning, Lord, in your mighty name. Amen. 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 Well, as, uh, as Steve said, we're beginning this uh, new 10-week series on love, relationships, and, and sexuality, and we call it Love Matters, because love really does matter. And there's barely a more um, uh, a subject with more divergent views in society today than the whole issue of sex and sexuality. It's a massive, massive uh, subject. And there's also this kind of competing worldviews, all kind of vying for attention as to how we should treat this subject, mixed with this kind of culture of outrage and uh, uh, that's trying to shut down any meaningful conversation. So you've got two things going on, a huge subject that we need to talk about and a, and a, and a culture of outrage and offence that's trying to shut down any meaningful dialogue on the subject. And that's the, the context that we're, we're speaking into. Someone once said this, the gospel is most relevant where culture is most confused. And there is no question that on this subject, culture is most confused. And that's why we want to look into it. And, and I really want to start with an apology, which is to say that as a church, and uh, uh, we have not spoken into this soon enough, um, and I've not led you well on that, and I just want to apologize for that, that we've not spoken to it. There are various reasons for that, which I won't go into, but firstly, just to say sorry that we've not spoken into this. I know that it's left numbers of you uh, raising kids and um, dealing with issues in the workplace and all sorts of stuff without any kind of uh, teaching from the front here uh, to kind of undergird that. And so I just want to apologize for that, which is why we're now taking 10 weeks together to look at this and to look at it from lots of different angles, as you'll see as the weeks go on. Um, and and the, the second thing to say is um, this is going to be 12A, so parents with kids under 12, be aware of that, please. And particularly if you're watching online, uh, our right age group, which is uh, 11 to 13s, they're going to be watching a week behind, so they'll have an edited version of the video because we really want to engage with them, but also there's some stuff we need to talk about that wouldn't be appropriate for their ages as well. So some of the weeks will be that. Um, a few other introductory things to say. Uh, well, one thing to say is that some people will say, well, why does even God care who I sleep with? Why does sex matter to God at all? And that's a prevailing thought. Is God just some kind of cosmic killjoy? Why do we even talk about this in church? Why, do, why does the Bible even mention this whole issue of sexuality? Uh, and the reality is, that the truth is this, that everyone has an opinion about sex. Everyone has a sexual morality. There's just no escaping it. You know, every one of us have been at the park where we, we've seen a couple of dogs getting on and having a good old time, or at the zoo and the monkeys start doing things that really monkeys just do. And, and you know, I've even been at someone's house where a little terrier started to think that I was its, you know, love interest uh, on my leg. And everyone's been in situations like that. At, and, and we kind of snigger and kind of, if we've got kids with us, we kind of turn, avert their eyes if possible. But I tell you what, if you were at the park and a couple of adults stripped off their clothes and started going at it, you would have an opinion. You would not be sniggering right there. You would have an opinion about that because everybody has a sexual morality. 
Everyone has a sexual morality. No matter what background, where they come from, everyone has a sexual morality. The question is not if you have a sexual morality. The question is, what is your sexual morality? Where does it come from? And more importantly, what are the consequences of it? Because every sexual morality comes from somewhere, and it has significant consequences. Everyone cares about this. And so to the question of why does God care who I sleep with, why does God care about sex, the answer is, well, everyone cares. And shouldn't we think then that God, who created us, also has an opinion, also cares? Sooner or later, everyone cares. Even the most liberal person watching this online or even in the room today has a sexual morality, and they care. You know, in the, in the, in the Philippines, we've got many uh, brothers and sisters who are with us who are from the Philippines. Well, in the Philippines, the age of consent is 12. And so an 80-year-old man can have sex with a 12-year-old girl. An 80-year-old woman can have sex with a 12-year-old boy. And any combination you like to... Now, everyone cares about that. Everyone has an opinion about that. You might agree with it, you might disagree with it. But I'm telling you, you will have an opinion about whether that is right and that is wrong. Everyone has a sexual morality. Another example from the BBC, Frank uh, Vio, a man who was interviewed on the BBC, says this, I've never been in a, mo a monogamous relationship, a relationship with just one person in my life. When I was in high school, I took two dates to my senior prom. I lost my virginity that night. Today, he lives with his long-term girlfriend in a home he shares with her other boyfriend. He is also in four other long-distance relationships, people he sees with very openly, with various degrees of frequency. Is that right or is that wrong? I'm sorry, but everyone has an opinion about that. Everyone has a sexual morality. Everyone cares. And so should, it shouldn't be a surprise to us to learn that God, who created us, in our view, also has an opinion. He cares about sexual morality. It's not like he left a naked Adam and Eve in the garden and went for a cup of coffee and came up and was like, oh, what are you guys up to? Ugh, I never even thought that you would do that. That's disgusting. It didn't surprise God when sex came along. It was his idea. And the Bible is quite clear. He creates it as a good gift for us. Everyone cares about sex. And so he has an opinion. And, and as just the last point of introduction, and I'm in danger, I know, of my introduction being longer than my message, but as the last point to the introduction is this, is that what if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this, either you're in the room and, or you're listening online. Well, first you say you're very, very welcome. We've all been on a journey towards faith in Christ, and you're very welcome to join us on this journey but you need to understand this is the Christian view of sex and sexuality. Uh, that it's meant for those who follow Jesus. And if you're not following Jesus, some of the things I'm about to say won't make any sense to you whatsoever. They come from within a whole worldview of what it looks like to follow Christ. We believe that Christ entered into our world, that he called us to a certain uh, a lifestyle to follow him. And so if you're, you're listening to this and you don't believe in God, you might not care what God thinks about sex, and that's fine. But you need to understand that I'm going to explain to you what God does say about sex. But for you, a much more important question is who is Jesus? And did he really die for my sins? And is he really God incarnate? That's a much more important question. If you're listening online, I urge you, stop this talk and, and go and listen to Steve's talk last week on Easter Sunday. Where it looked at who is Jesus. Now, I know you're not going to do that because no one skips a talk on sex. But at least I've said it. <laughs> at least I've said it. At least you could listen to it afterwards. Because that's a much more pressing question for you is who is Jesus? Because once you've decided that Jesus has the words of eternal life, then you care what he thinks about sex. 
But if you, don't th- if you think he's just some religious teacher along with a mass of other religious teachers, then so what? His opinion counts no more than anybody else's. But if, like us, like me, you've come to the opinion that Jesus' opinion counts more than anybody else's opinion, then that's a foundation to look at this together. And I'm going to look at the Christian view of sexuality and I'm going to teach unashamedly from the Bible. We believe that the Bible is God's blueprint for life. We believe the Bible is God's blueprint for life. Uh, and, and in it, it's got instruction for us for our good and our benefit. And so when we look at this, I have to view it from that point. And you might say, well, can't you do it without the Bible? I really can't. It would be like saying, you know, explain to me how a computer works without talking about electronics or programming. I can't do it. Explain to me how a marathon works without talking about running. I, oh, oh, people walk very quick. I mean, you just can't really do it. And so that's why we have to start from the blueprint of, of the Bible. And the Christian worldview holds together in one package. You can't take bits of it. You have to look at it as a whole, and that's what we're trying to, to do today. I didn't hold that worldview once. I was an atheist and a, and a naturalist. Notice I didn't say natur- naturist, because... <laughs> Naturalist and the naturist are two very different things. One doesn't believe that there's a supernatural and the other doesn't believe in clothes. I was, a, I, was, I was an atheist and a naturalist, which meant I didn't believe in a supernatural world, but now I do. And so everything that shapes my worldview comes from a Christian worldview, and the whole thing holds together in that way. Try and move on from the thought of me being a naturist, please. <laughs> So I want to paint a picture of sex and sexuality uh, as a foundation for our talks, but I want to paint it from this worldview of what does the Bible say? What does God think about sex? Not just why is it true, but why is it good and why is it beautiful? What, 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 is it, what makes this such an appealing package for us who follow Christ? And we're going to base our study on a, a letter by the Apostle Paul. And Paul was one of the earliest followers of Jesus. He was a, a single man who followed Christ. And he wrote powerfully to one of his earliest churches, which was in a city called Corinth. And you just need to know a little bit about Corinth. Because Corinth was one of the Roman cities that was probably the most sexually promiscuous in the entire of, Rome, uh, of Roman society. It was actually known for its promiscuity because uh, they had a verb which meant to live a sexually extravagant, promiscuous life, and it was called to Corinthianize. <laughs> That's how bad Corinth was in terms of sexual morality. That's how low it was that even the Romans, who, let's face it, anyone you know about Roman history know that it was pretty depraved, that the extreme version of their depravity in terms of sexual morality was Corinth. And Paul's writing to a little fledgling church in Corinth, and this is what he writes. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6. There's a huge section, but we're just going to read one portion of it. Verse 9. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or who commit adultery or who are male prostitutes or who practice homosexuality. We're going to spend a couple of weeks just looking at that little section there because it's uh, such an important issue for us today. Or who are thieves or who are greedy people or drunkards or who are abusive or cheat people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you are once like that, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You say, and Paul's quoting uh, from a letter that they've written to him, but I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. 
You say food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. And this is true, although someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. Don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. We've got to start in this place, and the place that we have to start is, what is sex? What is sex? You know, when I was 11 years old, I walked into a newsagent down the end of the road next to Lamaby Swimming Baths. And I would always go into the newsagent and buy some sweets after I'd had a swim. And so I walked in there this day, and I saw a newspaper. But instead of it being closed, it was flipped open. And I noticed for the first time that on page three was a picture of a topless lady. And I had never seen any... This was before the days of the internet. I had never seen anything like it before. And the emotions and the excitement that coursed into my 11-year-old body in that moment... I, I, I bought that newspaper, I smuggled it into my house because I knew my parents wouldn't approve. And that moment began a more than decade-long addiction to pornography that began at that point. And the shame and the anguish and the torment that I went through to live with this secret addiction to pornography was just a life-gripping. Some people had problems with, uh, with alcohol. Some others had issues with various other things. My issue was porn. I was addicted, chronically addicted. And I, got to, I went through a very dark period. I became an atheist during that period. And then through a miraculous intervention of God, I came to faith in Christ again. And then uh, while I was at university, one Sunday, I just was even still battling. It was slightly better, but still battling with it. I, I just thought, I can't live with this anymore. And I saw an older gentleman in the church, and I thought, he looks like he's got a kind face. And I said, I just need to talk to you. And he looked at one look at me, and he realized, you need to come around to my house tonight. <laughs> this is not a Sunday morning kind of chat, is it? And so I went around his house that night, and for the first time, I poured out the whole sorry story of a decade of shame and secrecy to this man. And instead of the, the revulsion that I was expecting, he just put his arms around me, and he was weeping and crying as I was crying. And he said, my poor boy, my poor boy. And he just prayed for me. And he prayed for me and led me into repentance and freedom. He gave me some counsel about how to walk out in freedom in terms of talking with other friends and walking with that. But it was just a defining moment of my life. But lots of people would say what he did was wrong. They would say, he should not have done that, Simon. He should have. He should have said, Simon, you, the only problem you've had is you've been repressing your sexuality. You should have just been going with it. What's wrong with it? You're, it's a natural teenage thing. You should have just gone with that whole thing. The only problem, Simon, is the shame that you've experienced. Now bring it out into the open. You'll be fine. That's what some people would say. What is sex? 
The only way how you can decide whether what he did was right or what, what he did was wrong was answering that question, what is sex? Mary Eberstadt, who writes loads on this, said this, the sexual revolution made sex into hygienic recreation in which anything goes so long as those involved are consenting adults. The sexual revolution made sex into hygienic recreation in which anything goes so long as those involved are consenting adults. Is that what we think sex is? This is what Andrew Wilson, my friend, said. If you think sex is merely an enjoyable physical experience between consenting adults, like tandem skydiving but without clothes, then God's restrictions on it won't make any sense at all. Is that what sex is? What is sex? It's a critical question. You know, you know, as a society, we are deeply, deeply unstable on this question because we see it through every book and media. They pump this view that sex is that. It's hygienic recreation. That's all it is. And, and, and the movie shows the, the, the couple meeting in a bar and they, 10 minutes later they're in bed together and then, and then they never see each other again for the rest of the film and it's all happy and wow, what a natural expression of sexual freedom. And, and, and off it goes and the, and, the, and the ratings get lower and lower and lower and it just becomes more and more and more excessive. And that's what we see. But then a footballer is caught and he's had multiple sexual relationships with multiple women and suddenly it's oh, look at his secret love trysts and, and society pumps these two views is sex sacred or is it not is it special or is it not is it is it something just to be enjoyed hygienic recreation or is it not what you see out there is a completely conflicting view they love one day they'll hold up one and the other day they'll hold up the other either sex is sacred or it's not is it just like we're just like the animals or are we not and in society you'll get both views and they pump both out at all times depends on the moment depends on the mood depends on the writer of the article you know in a the movie A Beautiful Mind, where Russell Crowe plays uh, John Nash, who is a brilliant mathematician who was struggling with schizophrenia and various other mental health issues. He's in a bar uh, one time, and he meets this beautiful young woman. And he says to her, look, I don't have the words to say whatever it is that's necessary to get you into bed, so can we just pretend I said those things and skip to the part where we exchange bodily fluids? <laughs> And she slaps him in the face, <laughs> and rightly so, because he's taken in the view, well, it's just, we're just two animals. What does it matter? Let's just crack on. Let's forget all the niceties, and let's just get to it. The world has this view that sex is just hygienic recreation, but God wants to speak into that, and he says this, sexuality is sacred. And let's just read that little bit again in verse 13. Food was made for the stomach, and the stomach for food you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself. God bought you for a high price. You must honor God with your bodies. The world says sex is hygienic recreation, and God says, no, no, sex is sacred. He says you were not made for sexual immorality. You know, Early in our marriage, I, before I realized that the kitchen was sacred, before I realized that every drawer contained implements that had been carefully curated by Caroline for a purpose, if I wanted to open a can of paint, I would just go to the closest drawer and pick out the nearest flat-bladed instrument and use it to open the can of paint. Any other person ever done that? <laughs> Until I realize that, no, 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 every implement has its purpose. And when I use it to open a can of paint, it is then defiled for culinary use. And Caroline had no small means of telling me and persuading me that her point of view was correct. 
It's exactly what God's saying. He's saying, listen, you weren't, you, you weren't designed to open a can of paint with that thing. <laughs> your body was not designed for sexual immorality. He says, your body was made for the Lord. We often think of our bodies being made by the Lord, but have you ever thought through the lens of your body was made for the Lord? Your body was made for the Lord. And then he expands it in verse 19. He says, your body was made to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't you realize your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? What he's saying is this. He's joining into the the picture, the story of the whole Bible, which is that God uh, was separated from his people through sin, but then through one thing or another, he caused a temple to be created. And that temple was purified by the priests. They sacrificed animals. They purified it so that a holy God could meet with a sinful people in that place. But then Jesus came and did all way with all of that. And he said, no, no, I have now been the sacrifice once for all. I have paid the price to prepare what? A, a new temple somewhere else, you know, somewhere in the Middle East? No, 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 to prepare you to be a temple so that you are now purified, so that God doesn't meet with you in some far off place that you have to travel to on some pilgrimage so that God can meet with you every day. Where? It's somewhere else got to come to church. No, 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 in your body. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are carrying the very presence of God. And so many people think the Christian version of sexuality, that God's just saying, oh, just stop it because, you know, just stop it. He's not. He's saying, you're too good to live like that. I have prepared you. I have paid a huge price for your body. I paid with the blood of my son for you. Your body's not your own anymore. It belongs to the Lord. You have been made for the Lord. Why? So that he could dwell with you. He takes your broken, unclean body and gives it back to you, but this time it's filled with his very presence. Wow! So that we can become mini temples of God walking around the planet, carrying his presence, so that the earth will be filled with the glory of God. As the Bible says, it's not like just some kind of great cloud rolling over the planet. It's because men and women, ordinary men and women like you and I, travel over the world carrying the very presence of God with us and bringing his kingdom wherever we go. So the Christian version of a vision of sex is rooted in this. Sex is sacred because you are sacred. Because you have been prepared. Temples have sacred things in them. But what if you are a temple? What if I am a temple? Then we carry the sacred God himself with us. It starts to help us understand why we can't say that sex is just hygienic recreation anymore. Sex is sacred. And the Paul's saying, listen, and he would say the same to our society today as he says to the, the The Corinthians, we don't get what our bodies have been made for. You've been made for the Lord. You're too good to live like this. Sexuality is sacred. And it's got huge implications. Yes, of course, sex is enjoyable. Sex is fun. Sex is an amazing gift that God has given to us. If you think God is a prude, just read Song of Songs to your parents. (laughs) And see who gets embarrassed first, you or God. He designed this thing. He said it's good. He's not ashamed or embarrassed of sex, but it's like a a fire that only works in the fireplace. And when it gets out of the fireplace, it does horrendous damage because your body is sacred and you are sacred. That's why when you get married and you present your virginity to your husband or your wife, 
at that, in that moment, you present a sacred gift. Apart from all of my other sexual immorality, I was actually physically a virgin when I married Caroline. It was a broken gift, but it was a gift that I gave to her. When you resist sexual immorality as a married person, you give a gift to your spouse. You present something to them. When you resist sexual immorality as a single person, you present a gift to the Lord himself. Because you're saying, I want to keep this temple pure for you. Married or single, we're called to this. The world says the body, your body is a temple. You're right. Your body is a temple. But the temple the world presents is a temple to the idolatry of self. It says use your body to indulge yourself and enjoy yourself and experience all that you can because this life is all you've got. And if that's your worldview, then God bless you to it. But I'm saying to you there's a different type of temple that you're called to. You're called to be a temple, but not a temple to the idol of self. You're called to be a temple to the God of the universe who wants to dwell with you. And he's calling you to a sexual ethic that revolves around that. Sex is sacred. The next piece is this. Sex, our sexuality is scarred. There's so much pain and suffering around sexuality. Because we have not treated sexuality as sacred, our sexuality has become scarred. And I've prayed with tens, maybe hundreds of people around their sexual brokenness. You know, Statistica reports that, it's a website that tracks statistics, reports that rape in the, yeah, um, England and Wales has increased 400% between 2007 and 2017. And some of that is people's confidence to come forward and report rape, but not all of it. In fact, in London, in the last two years, rape has increased 20%. And the police honestly don't, they know that it's not just a, people are reporting it more. There, there's something going on in our society the level of brokenness is just increasing. The, the world's biggest porn site proudly reported that it has to, in total now 1.5 million hours of pornography available to stream. That amounts to more than 173 years worth of content. Their press release says this. The first telegraph message was sent on May the 24th, 1844. If you started watching our videos on our site then, you would still be watching new porn videos today. <laughs> Come and join us. I'm very, very happy about that news. 173 hours. That's 173 years worth of porn content. Sexuality is horribly, horribly scarred. Porn is destroying lives. Chris Rock, uh, who's a, uh, not a believer as far as I know, he's a comedian, 2018, he did a show on Netflix where he talks openly about his pornography addiction. He talks how it destroyed his marriage, how it contributed to years of infidelity, ultimately destroyed his marriage of 16 years. And this is what he said. When you watch too much porn, you get desensitized. When you start watching porn, it's like any porn will do. Then later on, you're all, and he swears, messed up, and you need a perfect porn cocktail to get you off. Porn is destroying people's lives. It's, I know firsthand that I still carry the scars of it. I still have to be super, super careful what I watch and what I read because I know where that road leads for me. Some have weaknesses in other areas. That would be my vulnerability. I still am accountable to the other uh, elders about this. I still, you know, Common Sense Media, which is a website that helps you check what your kids should be watching. I use it for myself <laughs> to check what I should be watching because I know some people can watch stuff and it doesn't seem to bother me. For me, whoa, I know where that road goes. I know where that goes. I still carry the scars of that addiction. I've seen couples break up over addiction to sex. I've seen couples commit adultery and weep at the brokenness around them. Teens addicted to pornography. 
sexual scarring is so prevalent in our society. I've heard stories that, honestly, if I were to tell, them, oh, tell you them over breakfast, they'd curdle your milk. Uh, so much hurt and pain and damage. Because we've not seen sexuality as sacred. Sexuality has become scarred. This would be the Christian vision, the mission of... Uh, the, the Christian uh, outlook on sexuality. This is what Paul writes. Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join him to a prostitute? Never. Don't you realize that if you, a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her. For the scriptures say the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. We don't have to look very far to see the fantastic gift that God has given us has been so brutally damaged. And, and it, it makes sense, doesn't it? Gravity, the laws that God's given us around gravity, we, we understand gravity, we respect it. We know if you step off a cliff, you're going to die. Electricity, we understand electricity, we've harnessed it, we use electricity, but we know if we stick our finger in a plug socket, you're probably going to injure yourself and you might die. But when it comes to sex, we're like, oh, well, hang on, we'll make up our own rules. We'll make up our own rules around sex. No, we'll respect gravity and we'll respect electricity. But when it comes to sex, we define the right to make up our own rules and we are reaping the whirlwind as a result, as a nation, as a society, as a whole. Even those who don't follow Christ are beginning to see that the sexual revolution is having incredibly unintended but damaging effects. This is what Joanna Coles, who wrote the book Love Rules, getting naked and having sex with strangers is hard. We portray it as fun and we pretend it's fun. But people crave intimacy, which is not easy to create in a hookup. (laughs) The damage is huge. And Paul says when you unite with someone sexually, something more happens than just an exchange of bodily fluids. It's more than hygienic recreation. He says you become one with them. Caroline's mum once went into the garage when we were visiting the States to get some superglue, to find the superglue for some project. And it was dark, so she took a torch. She picked, found the superglue, picked it up, but was looking for something else, so she held the superglue in the hand with the torch on it. When she came back into the kitchen, she hadn't realised that the lid was off the superglue, and so as she was squeezing the torch, she'd also squeezed the superglue, and the entire contents of the tube had emptied itself over her hand and the torch. And to add to that, she'd been out there for five minutes, it so it was rock solid literally her hand was cemented to the torch what do you do no one knew it was the early days of the internet we looked it up google said you've got to use nail polish remover have you got any nail polish remover so she had like a little bit in a bottle we tried that that wasn't gonna be enough we went out and bought six bottles and it took us about an hour and a half carefully pouring it over again and again to slowly remove her fingers from the torch and to Separate. I don't exactly know what Paul's saying when he says you become one flesh with her, but I think that's the best illustration I can give us. What he means is you can't just go here and there and just walk away. (laughs) Something gets stuck. Something gets left behind. And I meet and pray for countless people where something got left behind. The damage sexually is horrendous and it's everywhere around us. That's why Paul says run from sexual sin. No other sin clearly affects us. Our sexuality is scarred. And so the fourth, the third thing that we need to understand when it comes to a Christian vision of sexuality is this. Our sexuality needs a saviour. Into this sexual mess steps Jesus. Paul begins his passage looking at 
all sorts of sin. And notice this passage isn't just about sin. He's listing all sorts of other sins. And we have to be careful because the church can unfairly pick out sexual sin and say, we've got to deal with that. Well, actually, we've also got to deal with greed and envy and all sorts of other stuff that are sins and do damage to our souls. So we have to be careful. But this series is on sexuality, and this passage is mostly focused on that. So that's where we'll we'll land. But we we mustn't forget that. He starts by looking at all these things that people have got involved with. And then he says this. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The world says sexuality is fine. Just express yourself. But God says your sexuality was a sacred gift that you've now scarred. You need a saviour. You need a saviour to come into your sexuality and to save you. And that's why Jesus come, fully human, fully, uh, it says he was tempted in every way like us. And yet he knew no sin. He never gave himself into a lustful thought. He, ne- he walked with prostitutes. He hung out with people who sinned in all sorts of ways. And yet he never slept with anyone. He remained a single celibate man for his entire uh, life before he died. And the reality is this, anyone can come from no matter what background, no matter how sexually broken you have been, anyone can come to Christ because he is the saviour for all. He is the only one who could save us because he maintained a sexual purity beyond any of us. He was the only one who could enter in and pay the price to call us out of every level of sexual brokenness. And and there's this beautiful story in the Gospels where Jesus has brought a woman caught in adultery. And they bring this woman to her and and they want him to condemn her. And instead he just writes on the sand with his finger. He bends down and writes on the sand with his finger. And they press him, give us an answer, condemn this woman. And he stands up and this is what he says. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And he bends down and carries on writing on the ground. And it says in the story that, One by one, starting from the oldest, they all leave him until just Jesus and this woman are left. And it says this, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I mean, it's just such an amazing story. Uh, It's such a powerful story. The problem is people have tried to twist that story. And some people want a Jesus who is just outrageous love. They want a Jesus who who just says, neither do I condemn you. Go for it. You know, they want a Jesus who's just outrageous love. Uh, And some parts of society, most of society is like that. And some parts of the church have become like that. And some people, they want a Jesus who, who is all about the truth. He is about unwavering truth. And he says, go and sin no more. The beautiful thing, I think, is that we've got a Jesus, the real Jesus, who says both. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And no matter how people want to twist him and distort him, Jesus says both. Neither do I condemn you. The church should be the place where it is easiest to come and confess sexual sin and brokenness. But it should also be the place where it's easiest to get free from sexual sin and brokenness. That both should be happening. That we should be those kind of people. That we are the king's arms. We embrace everyone. We say, come. We were just like you. We were lost. We were broken sexually. We were completely messed up. But Christ has saved us. He's the saviour who says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. He's the Christ who puts his spirit in us so that we can live as the temples we're always meant to be. Who empowers us to live as we're always meant to live. This is the church I'm believing for. This is the church I believe that Jesus died to build. 
Some of my most powerful moments in Christian settings have been in a men's group where someone's confessed their sexual sin and instead of the revulsion they're expecting, they see a band of brothers gathering around and I hear stories from the ladies very similar. Well, there's something powerful about creating an environment where we can break the shame and come into the light but not be left where we are. Not just as the world would say, hey, what are you talking about? Go, great, just enjoy yourself. But we're called, no, you're called to something higher because you are worth more than this. Sexuality is sacred. Our sexuality is scarred. Our sexuality needs a, si- needs a saviour. And, and lastly, our sexuality is a signpost. This is what Paul writes. You don't realise that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her. For the scriptures say the two are united into one, but the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. What he's saying is this. You can, you can be joined with a prostitute. And, and let's face it, prostitutes are paid to, to give the greatest sexual pleasure. So as far as sexual pleasure is concerned, they, they know what they're talking about. You can become one with the prostitute and you can get the greatest sexual pleasure that this earth can offer. But there's something else that's an offer. You could become one with the Lord. <laughs> He's saying your sexuality is just a signpost actually to something greater. One with a prostitute is one thing. But being one with the Lord is a whole nother deal. <laughs> He's saying there's something greater. It's a signpost to something greater. This is what Jesus said when asked about an issue of sexual immorality. He said, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. And the world says, what? There'll be no sex in heaven. Oh, no. Because in the world's eyes, they hold up sex as the highest thing. And, and, the, and, and God says, it's a great thing. But I'm telling you, the God who designed sex has designed something greater. <laughs> We just don't know the full picture of what it looks like yet, but he has designed something greater than sex, more pleasurable than sex, more intimate than sex, more connected than sex. Paul's saying you can be one with a prostitute, that's one thing, but there is something greater. You can be one with the Lord. There is an intimacy and a connection available for each one of us. And so sexuality is a signpost. It's a signpost that points to something greater. Yes, sex should be celebrated in the context of marriage and enjoyed But for those who are single, for those who are uh, 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 tempted to have sex outside of that marriage relationship, it's a a pointer to, the sex is actually a pointer to something else. That there is an intimacy available, that there is a connection available. And we experience the first fruits of that even today. Jesus said this, he said, the greatest love is where? In marriage, he said, the greatest love is when a man lays his life down for a friend. And any one of us, what he's saying is that the love in marriage is great, but there's something greater. It's a sacrificial love that comes from friendship. Is the greatest love of all. He's saying anyone can, can enjoy that. That's why so the two people who are most quoted and preached from, their words on this stage are Jesus and Paul. Both were single. Were they living unfulfilled lives? I don't think so. I don't think so. The, the world would say, you're sacrificing so much to not have sex. And I, as we prepared for this series, I've talked to so many people who have, uh, who have not had sex outside of the bounds that I'm talking about, who have lived single lives or lived in a marriage life and not had uh, uh, adulterous affairs. And, you know, the message that I hear again and again is this. The world would say you're sacrificing so much. And the message I hear again and again is this. Knowing Jesus is worth any sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> Knowing Jesus is worth any sacrifice. And I know, looking from outside that world for you, that sounds crazy. If you're looking from the outside in, that sounds crazy, but you can only, all I can say is you've got to go on the journey to experience it. You've got to go on the journey to experience what it means to know Christ and to walk with him. 
Jesus said this in Matthew 16. If you want, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross and follow me. If you to try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. We've just been indoctrinated by the world's view of sexuality. But a Christian vision of sexuality is this. Sex is sacred. Sexuality is scarred. Our sexuality needs a saviour. Our sexuality is a signpost to something greater. And God's calling us to this life. To eject, to reject another view of sexuality. And to embrace his view as taught in his word. And you know, as I've... I was even praying this morning about this and preparing, thinking, God, I'm not sure I feel ready to even do this series. I was reminded of Isaiah, who it says in Isaiah 6, he meets with God himself. And he comes away, he says, I'm an unclean man. I've got unclean lips. I'm living amongst an unclean people. And it says an angel comes and puts a coal on his lips and purifies him. And then the Lord says, who will go and speak on my behalf? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And I can imagine there's many of us feel that way. We've come from a, such a level of sexual brokenness that we think, who, who are we to stand up and speak about these things? But the Lord would say to us, I have sent my son to purify you. <laughs> to purify you. So that you can go out, not with judgmentalism, not with pride, but in genuine humility and reach out to a broken world. <coughs> And say, we have seen another way. <laughs> we have seen a different way. We have seen a saviour who can come into that scarring that you carry. Who can create in you a new heart. Can make you live a sacred life. Who can show you that you were born to be a temple. And can cause you to see a signpost of where this whole thing is pointing to. Which is intimacy with God himself. I believe that's where God's calling us to go as a church. Let's take a minute to pray, shall we?